This is History Lab and I'm Tamsin Peach. So much goes into making a History Lab episode. It's weeks and weeks and weeks of work. There's the scripting, there's the investigation process, there's all the audio, there's trying to make sense of the story, and there's that process of bringing journalists together with historians. Bringing historians and journalists together is a complicated thing because they've both got really different methods of working. They've got different ethical practices and they think about evidence differently. But like all things that are difficult, it's magic when it works. We caught some of the producers as they were deep in this process right before the launch. Their heads were totally in the making space and so we got some real gold. My colleague Anna Clark from the Australian Centre for Public History joined me on 2SCR's other podcast, Glam City, to have a chat with the History Lab producers. So here's some of that conversation. People make history every day, don't they, Anna? But in the studio is the wonderful Tom Allenson and Jason Lecuyer, and they are the producers of History Lab Podcast. Hi, Tamsin. Hi. And normally you don't hear their voices, so this is great. We're behind the microphone this time. Well, you, Tom, you should, like, with a voice like that, you should be behind the microphone a hell of a lot more. <laughs> so you've taken over as executive producer for season two of History Lab. Can you tell us what an executive producer does? In the last well, what a producer season. does, even. Yeah, well, okay. So is I was, it basically I was a like producer. a historian, but on radio, or is it different? Well, we try not to be on radio. We try <laughs> to avoid that. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, the, a producer would work together with our collaborating historians to treat their work. And essentially, that ends up being a bit of a relationship where the producer actually learns a whole lot about how historians do what they do. And we're hoping that some of that process comes out in the episode. I'm just going to jump in and ask another question, which is when, I, when you drive a car, you're driving you know, on a road, it's a particular dimension, you can stop, you can turn left or right. I'm wondering if it's a little bit like then getting into a plane an aeroplane and you can go up and down and you have to, you know, you can move left and right. And there's actually, it's actually a different dimension of storytelling. Is that analogous? Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I think probably one of the differences is that your, uh, I mean, the most obvious would be that the medium is different. You know, it's, it's audio as opposed to writing something. So you've got, uh, and then there are different ways of telling a story. Obviously you can tell it just by having the presenter explain a story or you could have the producer write, you know, this omniscient God character to explain how things happened. Or you can go out and you can actually get people's voices and you can get people in their situations and you can get, you know, you can get things from their perspective. And then you've got to figure out how to incorporate those into the story. So you're, you're writing with people's voices in mind as well, which adds that extra dimension and and from a producer's standpoint, you, you know, you've got a, uh, there's a story, there's this story that you're trying to tell, and then you might have four people's take on it at various aspects, and you have to write up to and around those voices. So that's, that's a key difference. And um, would it be fair to say that you know what the story is before you set out? Uh, you have an idea of what the story is when you set out, and oftentimes it ends up being completely different. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in the case of ours, we had a task. We were going to go out and look for the first deposit into the Bank of New South Wales. And we went out searching for that deposit, and then that just snowballed into 
a whole other story. Banking Royal Commission. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're responsible <laughs> for that. Two hundred years later. <laughs> yeah, we'll claim that. Um, yeah, so we set out with a question, and then it was kind of answered, and then led to more questions, and totally changed the project. Welcome to history, Jason. Mm. Mm. I like it. I mean, that sounds to me a lot like the historical method. And what I love about History Lab is that often the story of finding out, or the story that each episode tells, is the story of finding out the answer rather than necessarily. more questions, even. Yeah, that's right, which leads, as Jason said, to more mm. questions. Rather than necessarily, you know, in the process, we learn a lot, in your case, about the 1820s. But the real story is following you mm-hmm. as you learn. Yeah. How to make sense. As of, we do history. As you do history, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and realising that there is no one narrative, mm. I think, was something that we learned as well. There was, there were multiple, maybe back to your airplane analogy, there were multiple dimensions to it. There were multiple ways to tell the story from the side of the bank, from the side of the, um, you know, the, the people who were involved in the bank, the bank as an institution, uh, Governor Lachlan Macquarie at the time. There, there are many dynamics in many ways of telling it. Mm. The the method is the the story. Um, you know, we go to the archives and then we go to the Mitchell Library and then we go to um, Trove and we're actually figuring this out as we go along and we recorded it as we went. So the doing history makes the bulk of our, our episode. And it's as a non-historian and, and my colleague Nicole is not a trained historian either. She's an accounting lecturer. But both of us were just kind of nerding out as we went the whole way along because it did feel like it was uh, the past, of course, and it was also now. You know, we, we were we were able to access all these documents and start to line things up chronologically, and it just felt like it was happening mm. in the moment as well as in the past. This is Nicole and I speaking with Aaron Graham from University College London about accounting in the 19th century, which sounds pretty nerdy and i think they were they were pretty self-aware yes i mean partly this, this is a an accounting thing and i i could speak about imperial accounting for ages but i'm not sure anyone would want me to oh i um, would. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um, i mean i'm an accountant by trade so i think this is oh, yeah, oh well, there we go i'm very excited by the idea of imperial accounting <laughs> <laughs> um so th- this goes back to what what i was saying earlier about different funds and as non historians, we were blown away that we could access these things, that we could go and get a reel of microfilm, put it on, and then look at the payroll from the 46th Regiment from 1817. It's so specific, and we could actually do that. That's one of the interesting things, I think, about history and the digital age in particular, but also history in the last 30 or 40 years, that not only have the subjects of history being democratised. People are interested in the stories of everyday people, um, you know, mothers, children, uh, Indigenous people, sort of stories from below. But also historians, the subjectivity of historians has become democratised and everyday people can be historians and do history and precisely do the sorts of things you're describing. Go on to Trove, you know, have that experience of research, synthesis, writing, uh, bringing stories together. Yeah, it's incredibly empowering, I think. But yeah. I can see how it's also it, it also complicates things because there were the barbarians a, are at the gates. Yeah, if we can all tell the history, then whose history is it? But, I mean, that's that's right, and maybe the, those questions should be thrown open. But but it seems to me that History Lab is doing something, you know, slightly more than that, which is that also as you're looking 
for these traces and nutting out the detective, you know, investigation that is your your, your episode. Um, you are meeting ethical challenges. You're learning how to weigh sources. So all of that stuff that you learn in the process of doing a history mm. degree is done in public mm. so that people who do want to uh, access through the digital age all the sorts of materials have some guide as to how they might make sense of that material. And I think going back to the methodology being the story, Nicole and I figuring these things out as we go along also lends a kind of transparency that we're not coming to a single conclusion where we're sorting these things out as as we go. It's a little bit awkward, you know, realizing oh, we should maybe get this person's voice in it as well, or we should consider this aspect. But we're not coming to a single truth necessarily. And the truth that we are coming to, we're bringing the listener along so they know how we got there. So, so one of the ways that archives have been kept, they're going to be written archives, right? Mm. There's not sound recordings from the 19th century. So how do you deal with that? Like you're doing a podcast about the 1820s. Like yeah. how do you... No recordings from that period. Yeah, where's Lachlan in yeah. all of this? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, there are multiple ways that you could do it. You could get, from a, from a producer's standpoint, um, you could get somebody to do Lachlan McQuarrie's mm. voice, you know, uh, or you could get someone to read the archives. Uh, in our case, they're the bank's archives, so it would be, you know, 50 pounds in. September, 50 pounds out. So it wouldn't be that compelling. But, you know, we figured out ways to engage those archives in, I think, kind of clever ways. I hope Have you I got hope Pink Floyd's money clever. going on in there somewhere? No, but actually we should. That's a really good <laughs> idea. Um, we incorporate some of the written stuff by having an archivist read them in, in one case. And then we incorporate Lachlan Macquarie's correspondences to London by Nicole and I reading them together as we're finding them. It's also not only are you sort of reading out that archive, but you're recording that moment of discovery, in a sense, Mm. of you guys finding. Because archives by themselves are meaningless. They're just bits of paper in, you know, manila folder somewhere. It's only when we interact with them. Yeah, absolutely. That Especially these banks archives. They have life. Yeah, there there are um, in the banks archives. There, like a, a modern bank recording its transactions of money, in and money out. And just looking at that without context is okay. Yeah, so you see some money coming in and going out, but you hear it in the tape as we're discovering it and we're reading it. One of the other ways that we're trying to get around that fact that there's no tape from um, anywhere before 1920 um, is that to varying degrees of success, we reenact or dramatize certain things. And I know that this has come up as a bit of like significant feedback from the historians and other people that have engaged with the show. Are they into it? Well, not. To, to varying degrees. Next. I think that some people, some people definitely aren't. Um, and we've tried in this season to play with that idea a little bit because, like you say, we I think one of the issues with that is that we're kind of making an interpretation without necessarily backing that interpretation up, particularly in the in the episode that Nina Copel's making. We're, we're, we're playing around with that idea a bit, so that should be fun. Give us an example on what's the episode. Uh, well, the episode uh, is about the spirit of Geneva, how we started thinking internationally and how we started believing in something bigger than the nation. We come across a character in that episode who we know is only written about at two or three degrees of remove. So we question 
the account and we go through with the, the, the actor that is dramatizing that scene, we go through the various ways that he might interpret exactly how he might voice that account given that circumstances might have been completely different from any of the received interpretations that we have. That's fascinating. So that you're acknowledging in an audio sense that this is an act of interpretation. If it works, then yeah. yeah. <laughs> Picture London in the grip of fog and the well-fed, black-coated, bowler-hatted clerks and businessmen with their umbrellas and galoshes slopping along the strap. This is from an article called Fernando, the story of an Aboriginal prophet, printed in the Aboriginal Welfare Bulletin in 1964. Great Scott, what's this? Against the solid stone of Australia House stands a grotesque figure. A black man, hatless and with a grey beard. A mere handful of a man with the fine bones of an Australian Aborigine. I feel it's a bit of a 1960s version of London, so it's all about the kind of white, bowl-hatted crowd. It's got to be a rainy day. He stands in a greatcoat which reaches from his ears to his ankles. And on the coat, pinned from top to bottom, are scores of those little white penny skeletons. Little toy skeletons. That the street vendors sell to children. There's an image of him with long flowing hair and hatless, you know, in the rain, that he's very much a tragic figure. Good Lord, the man is a walking graveyard, yet his eyes are on fire. He points to those penny skeletons and shouts as people pass, this is all Australia has left of my people. So you became engaged in a political act that at once identified him as an Aboriginal man and connected the image of the skeleton, um, a very kind of, you know, Old Testament view of a murderous world. And he's the kind of the lone speaker of this terrible reality. And here all symbolised in the skeleton. And that when you went to buy one off his tray, he would say to you, This is all Australia has left of my people. but there are other ways of imagining this protest. It might have been a beautiful sunny day. This is all Australia has left of my people. Kids would love him. Apparently he would give toys away for free sometimes. <laughs> so there's a kind of fondness, perhaps an empowering moment. So what keeps him alive? What keeps his spirit? Even though it's a terrible subject, but the act of him doing something gives him life. Obviously, this isn't actually Fernando speaking. Uh, my name is Timothy Gray. I'm a Gumbanga Wiradjuri Bidjigal man, born in Maxville, a little town on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, and now reside in Redfern on Gadigal land. Timothy has a show on Koori Radio, and we asked him to come in and help us imagine what Fernando would have sounded like while staging his protests. Can you imagine that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've gone out and done it. So how would you project that? What's the line again? Sorry. <laughs> All Australia has left. Yeah. 
This is all Australia has left of my people. Any thoughts about how season two has been different to season one? You were a producer on season one. I guess one of the key things that really comes out that that comes up each time we're working through the difficulties of each episode is is this basic question of how do we know? And if we've forgotten that question at any point along the way in the mm. production process, we're reminded of ourselves of it pretty quickly. Yeah. And I suppose uh, that idea, that, that concept of how do we know, that's the most explicit in the episode about engineering pattern makers, whose trade is actually slowly disappearing from Australia. It's been happening for a while, but it is happening now. Would you call it a contemporary history I suppose I suppose it is contemporary history. I mean, it addresses lots of big historical changes since the 1980s. But there's also an element in there that's really about how we know this really history lab question. Um, what is an archive? And really what I think Olivia's doing in that episode is going looking for the object. Right? She's going looking for the source. And the quest to find the source is actually you know, the story, like it is in all the History Lab episodes. And and that's what makes it really beautiful. It's a very textured piece that then takes us to a bunch of unexpected places about skills. But people need skills to make archives. Yeah, I I think that's one thing that we really grappled with is whether we could consider a skill set an artefact. But conversely, one of the luxuries that we had with this episode is that uh, we could actually speak to real living people who'd lived this history. And for me, these people, their characters, that's the key part of this story. Because I think we find much more worth, more value in work than just the money that we are paid for it. Uh, We find our identity in it. If I'm a pattern maker and I'm not making patterns, then what am I? And that hit me like a train. It hit me like a freight train. And uh, it was a really sobering thought. And that was when I thought, well, you're going to have to be something else because pattern making is not going to be around. Get used to it. So what are you going to do? So, Tamsin, I mean, you were in the studio when we first started listening back to a lot of Olivia's tape uh, that she collected when she went out and spoke to these engineering pattern makers. And what was interesting for me is that this kind of, this idea of, this kind of Matrix-like idea started to emerge. You mean Matrix the movie? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) See, I kept talking about it as Plato's Cave. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's similar kind of ideas, right? The allegory of Plato's Cave, uh, I think, finds its way into a lot of... Um, stories that we know today, like the and film The Matrix. I mean, the allegory of Plato's Cave and The Matrix, of course, being that, you know, there is a world of shadows that we see, but we never really are seeing the true forms. We, we're in a cave looking at this world of shadows. And it was really interesting talking to Le- Olivia in those early stages of that script, because I don't think Jesse and, you know, Jesse Adamstein, the historian, um, the collaborating historian, I don't think she'd looked at the material in that way. And this was a really great example of how bringing this story making and storytelling skills of, of, of Olivia and my sort of slightly more macro perspective, together with this really detailed work, historical research from Jesse, really made something that Jesse would never have thought about and Olivia would probably never have thought about either. 
so the sum was much more than the parts. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, Jesse has been spending, what, hours, days, weeks uh, interviewing. I mean, it, it's hard work, right? Like, So she's, she's trying to get this kind of whole of life perspective. And I think that that's maybe one of the big differences between oral history and journalism. Journalists are, are looking for an angle. Whereas an oral historian is conducting interviews with far less focus. Um, they're trying to get a more holistic record of a person's life experience as they have experienced it in their own voice. Yeah, I mean, and those interviews are some of them five hours long, I think. Like, they're hours long. They're they're on the National Library of Australia's website if anyone wants to listen to them. But they are a great – they hopefully will be a great record about – the nature of work for historians in the future, which is why Jesse's made them. But you're right, like that instrumentality of telling a story does not necessarily uh, lend itself to a five-hour interview. So you might think that uh, having that much tape is actually useful for a producer, but actually it can be quite a bit of a curse because where do you start? Yep. And I think Olivia's, you know, been wrestling with that, but she's done a fantastic job. I really love this episode. This is History Lab and I'm Tamsin Peach. Thanks to our production team this year. Thanks to Tom Allenson, the executive producer, Jason LeCuyer and Nicole Sutton, who made episode one, Nina Kopel, who made episode two, and Olivia Rosenman, who made episode three. Thank you to our sound magicians, Joe Koning and Ryan Pemberton. Thanks to Ellen Liebeter and Lauren Carroll-Harris, who helped us with the scripts. And thank you to all our collaborating historians and all of the archives that we, we talked to. If you are a historian or researcher and you want to make a History Lab episode, we'd really love to hear from you. You can head to our website and there's a pitching form on there, but feel free to drop us an email as well. Drop me an email, drop the centre an email. Can I say something else? There's, there's something else we haven't really talked about, which is fantastic, and that's these two initiatives that the Australian Centre for Public History has done on top of Season 1. These are teaching resources for schools at all levels, primary, secondary, tertiary... And there's also a listening club set of questions. So if you, listening club is like a book club, but for podcasts. And we've got a set of starter discussions up on the website. So check that out too, historylab.net. History Lab is made in the studios of 2SER that sit on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And we pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, who have been telling stories here in this place since time immemorial.